Latin CHD. This is James Corbett, and I am here on Saturday, September 9th to welcome you to CHD TV and to introduce to you my lovely and charming co-host. Well, really the host of this program, but I'm introducing it for today. Of course, Dr. Meryl Nass, who as always will be here talking to us today. But I wanted to start it out today because I'm really, in a sense, interviewing her about her stellar and spectacular new article that has been, well, there's a version published on the Brownstone Institute page at brownstone.org, but also the most recent edition is up at her Substack. Um, so Dr. Merrill Nass, thank you for joining me today on your program. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for inviting me, James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not, why not? All right, well, uh, how, how have you been doing in the past month since we last talked? I, I know there's a lot going on, but uh, how's, it, how's it going so far? So we're running up, you know, we've founded doortofreedom.org and uh, we've got a lot of articles, we've got a lot of content on the website, we're tightening it up and sort of getting ready for a big launch. And um, I wrote an article which kind of um, took the, the treaty, the newest version of the pandemic treaty and contextualized it into a history of biological warfare. And then takes it out to where the WHO um, intends to take us in terms of biological warfare and gain-of-function research um, and potential pandemic pathogens. So um, I wrote a very long article. It's going to take you 30 minutes to read it, but it is the best thing you can read to understand uh, and get dots connected about what is really going on with the WHO and how disastrous this would be for everyone. And in the middle of that, you get a whole lot of information about how the US government and other governments have performed illegal actions on their citizens regarding the vaccines and other things. So it's, it's a potpourri of information. There's probably about 150 links in the article and um, it will give you lots of information to discuss with other people, which was my intention, uh, giving you the ammunition you need to understand and fight back against our government, the WHO and the Great Reset. Exactly right. Uh, and I couldn't recommend this strongly enough. There's so much information, as you say, hundreds of footnotes here and lots and lots of info. And so let's let's tell people where it is. It's at your substack, muralness.substack.com. It's the WHO's proposed treaty will increase man-made pandemics. And this is the final version that uh, you um, submitted on September 3rd. So I hope people will get it. I hope people will read it. Let's go through it and some of the important points. And I think it's important that you start this with a bit of the history of the chemical and biological weapons conventions and treaties that have existed over time and how and why they developed. And I guess that's in re response to the development of chemical and biological weapons in general. So tell us a little bit about that history and why it's important for grounding our understanding of what's going on today. Sure. So um, the modern day chemical and biological weapons started around World War I and biological weapons were used on cavalry horses in World War I. And then in the 1930s, Japan had a considerable biological warfare program, uh, which it tested and used in China uh, on hundreds of thousands of people. And we really don't know how many deaths and how much disease there was. Um, and 
so that preceded World War II, but continued into World War II. And the United States, uh, Germany, Russia, probably other countries also developed biological weapons programs during, uh, during World War II, if not before. Now, once people came to know about these things, they were not happy about them because this was a very indiscriminate way of killing or maiming civilians primarily. Um, there aren't that many ways to use biological weapons on an army and they haven't been used really to any extent on armies, but they're used on civilians. Um, they are a weapon of mass destruction like nuclear weapons, um, chemical, biologicals can, you know, kill hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people, you know, with one airplane full or something like that. So um, in 1925, after, after gas attacks and some biological attacks in World War I, the nations got together and created these Geneva protocols, which banned the use in war of chemical and biological weapons. And the United States signed this treaty, and so did most other countries, and most of them ratified it, but the United States did not ratify. And then later continued to use chemical and biological weapons in certain situations that we know about, such as the Vietnam War. And finally, um, 50 years after this Geneva protocol went into effect, the United States finally ratified it in 1975. Um, so that's sort of the, the long detailed history. Now, the original protocol only said you couldn't use them in wartime, but it didn't say you can't develop them and you can't stockpile them. Nixon, uh, after getting so much criticism about the Vietnam War, decided um, to issue a, to, to ask the nations of the world to come together and create a biological weapons convention that would really be effective and would stop research, development, stockpiling, as well as use. And uh, everybody was happy with that. So in 1972, he came out with that. He added toxins in 1973. And then in 1975, this treaty went into effect. Unfortunately, four years later, we learned the Russians, the Soviets were cheating. There was a leak in an anthrax uh, production facility in the town of city of Sverlovsk. Um, now it's called Yekaterinburg. And uh, this was a, a closed city. So there were very few foreigners there, very few people to actually tell the story. Wasn't entirely clear what happened, but a number of people died. And uh, doctors in the city saved pathology slides, saved evidence so that someday the story could come out. Then um, in 2001, in a book called Germs that Judith Miller of the New York Times and, and two other New York Times reporters wrote, it, it was revealed that the United States government had also been cheating and had been doing experiments uh, with to develop anthrax as a weapon um, that most scientists who knew anything about this treaty felt had been were banned. And we had been doing this secretly during the Clinton administration. So by 2001, basically everybody knew there was cheating and there was no way to stop nations from cheating because the, when the treaty had been developed, the idea was that 
we can do this in a hurry. We can make this, it, when you're getting 100 or 200 countries negotiating together the terms of a, a treaty, it takes a long time. So they said, look, we'll work on the inspections and the provisions to really tighten this treaty up and make it work so that nobody can cheat after we sign it and ratify it. And we'll do that with conferences, review conferences every five years. So no matter what happens over time, we'll continue to have these review conferences and they will make sure to, to deal with exigencies that arise and we can prevent cheating. But what happened then was that the, the United States, which decided right after Nixon had produced this treaty that actually biological weapons were something we could probably benefit from, or at least this is the assumption. I, I, uh, it's not written down in black and white, but the United States started blocking the review conferences from coming to any um, agreement about how to tighten up this treaty and make it work. So there are still, there's no ability for any nation to inspect another nation. There's, there's no provisions for punishments and it's sort of a treaty in name only. And that's, that's what we have now. Now we could strengthen it. You know, we could add those provisions now, um, but instead of doing, and that might have some effect because we could, under the treaty, we could go investigate any country we wanted to if they signed on. Instead, the nations uh, of the WHO are producing a completely new treaty, which is almost the opposite of this one. And I'll talk about that in a bit. I want to get into that and to flesh that out uh, in more detail. But before we do, let's look at this history in a little bit more detail, because it is important. I hope it will be familiar to people who are in my audience who saw my recent work on further down the David Kelly rabbit hole, because, of course, that story figures prominently in exactly what you were talking about there, including uh, the 1979 Soviet anthrax leak that led to the what were actually the first international biological weapons inspections. They weren't revealed to the public at the time, but in the 1980s, David Kelly was involved in the actual first exchange of uh, inspectors uh, going into Soviet Union and Soviet Union looking at the U.S. program, and David Kelly was involved in that. Um, that was uh, detailed in the anthrax war documentary that was aired on the CBC about 20 years ago that I know you were a contributor to. You were featured in that documentary. So I hope people will check out my work on that because it fleshes out some of that detail. I actually met David Kelly um, mm. at an international anthrax conference in, in Plymouth, UK in 1998. Um, the story I had about those inspections between, it was the United States, I think UK and Russia. Uh, yeah. And this was around 1990. Right. Um, right at the end of the at the end of the Soviet Union. So I was told by a, an editor of uh, New York Newsday. The Newsday was the Long Island newspaper, and Plum Island was on the tip of Long Island, so it was in their um, sort of purview. And um, no civilians had been allowed to go onto Plum Island, where the United States had a biological research, warfare, defense mm. facility. Since, you know, since uh, right after World War II or during World War II, we had it. And you had to get to this island on a, um, on a ferry. It was like a mile offshore or something like that. Um, so the first time anyone had been allowed on from Long Island that didn't work there was uh, right around the time of this inspection. And then they decided to open it up um, 
But mm. uh, interest an interesting story because there are many um, many theories about leaks from that Plum Island facility of West Nile virus, Lyme disease, and, and other things. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's it's all uh, and a very interesting story. Um, never completely elucidated. Do you have any of your own thoughts about what happened to David Kelly? Well, David Kelly was definitely murdered. Um, you know, there, there was so many, I, I covered the story when he died and, you know, there wasn't enough blood for him to have cut his ulnar or radial artery and mm -hmm. bled out. That couldn't work. Supposedly he was carrying Darvon with him, but the Darvon really wasn't, which is a, a mild narcotic, a synthetic narcotic. Um, that wouldn't have done it. Um, the position he was in when he was found, you know, wasn't right. He had been moved to that spot. There were, there were so many. So David, for the audience, so David Kelly was a top um, biological warfare defense scientist at um, Porton Down, the, the Fort Dietrich of the UK. And um, he was a, a very distinguished guy, um, but he had uh, leaked, I guess, I don't think he thought of it as a leak. He had leaked to the BBC, to a BBC reporter information about um, claims that had been made by Tony Blair. And um, they went after, the system went after him and he was uh, frightened. And then suddenly he went for a walk and he was found dead as if he had committed suicide with Darvon and slitting his wrist. But and, and also he had had an injury to one arm. And so the arm he supposedly slit his wrist with was the injured arm, which wouldn't have been able to do it. Anyway, that's yeah. well, was, there uh, have been many attempts to bring that story back. It, it's how old now? It's uh, about 20, 20 years, years old. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the authorities in the UK have um, suppressed it. Yes. For people who want more information on the specifics of what you're talking about there with regards to the technical details of why absolutely he did not kill himself. I, I did do a, a, a specific podcast on that Requiem for the Suicided, uh, Dr. David Kelly, many years ago that looked at all of those details, talked to some of the people, Dr. David Halpin and others who were involved in trying to get that inquest etc. Um, but I, I, as I say, I did just follow that up recently with further down the David Kelly rabbit hole where mm -hmm. I was looking at some of the other aspects of David Kelly's career because everyone I think knows him as the um, UN weapons inspector um, looking at Iraq in the 1990s. But he, as you say, he had a very long and interesting history at Porton Down that involved a lot of other subjects, including, of course, anthrax, which I know is your specialty. And I know this is tangential to the main point of your article, which is about WHO and pandemics. But before we leave this point, I want to pick your brain on this because it's always interested me. Um, one of the people that uh, Dr. David Kelly was was in touch with, in fact, was in touch with the day that he committed suicide, quote unquote, um, was Judith Miller. Um, that was the person right. to whom he wrote the dark actors playing games email that uh, has become um, uh, well known. And so, um, what has always fascinated me about that story and that timeline is, as you say, in 2001, Judy Miller um, wrote the book um, Germs, revealing essentially the illegal, question mark, um, biological weapons program. Oh, sorry, defense program that was being run by the Department of Defense, including, of course, the, I, I believe it was a front page New York Times article on September 4th, 
2001 next to old Reckhall, a germ-making plant, which revealed some of that story. I've always thought that timing is incredibly interesting, obviously coming literally one week before 9-11 and just a month and a half or whatever it was before the anthrax attacks of 2001. So we know that Judith Miller was getting a lot of her um, scoops from Scooter Libby. So it was probably the deep state that planned the timing this way. But her book was coming out. Her book came out that day. Um, it was a full page article in the New York Times. It was an extraordinarily, you know, detailed and long article. I met Judith Miller once too, as well. Um, but I don't, you know, it's it's this question of, do the people who are trying to bring us the Great Reset really need to warn us ahead of time of what they're doing? Because it seems like they keep warning us about things. And what is that all about? I, you know, I don't know. But um, it was incredibly curious that, that this came out seven days before the Twin Towers went down. Yeah. Yeah. Again, just very, very interesting. And I'm sure... Well, David Kelly probably would have had a lot to say about that. But at any rate, um, okay, let's move on with the article at hand. And again, talking about how this how this history ties into what we are living through right now. Because as you intimated before, the WHO is now essentially looking to, in a sense, replace or do something completely opposite or different to what the Biological Weapons Convention and other uh, similar conventions have done in the past. Tell us about that. So when did things start? Um I think they started decades ago. And so that there has been a plan moving forward um, that the biosecurity agenda that we now see that's really very visible to us has been around for several decades and um, actually preceded the anthrax letters, in my opinion. But in any event, um, the pand under the guise of the world needing to respond to pandemics better because they are going to happen very frequently and they're going to be much worse than the ones that came before. Um, it has been claimed by the WHO and UN and officials in the EU, the UK, the US, that we desperately need a pandemic treaty and we need a lot of amendments to the existing international health regulations in order to deal with what is going to happen to us in the future. Now, let me try to unpack that. Actually, pandemics are rare. So there were only three in the entire 20th century. The first one, of course, was 1918. A lot of people did die and it was serious. The next two were 1958 and 19, or 1957 and 1968. Those were flu pandemics. Um, more people died than you usual, and basically nobody noticed. Um, I remember my dad going into the hospital with one of them, and he was young. So, you know, made people sick, then they got better in general. Um, but since this um, uh, last two decades have happened, we've got a pandemic constantly. You know, we're, we're, every couple, three years, we have another pandemic. And Tedros, the director general of the WHO, has declared a public health emergency of international concern three times in the six years that he has been in office. So um, at least since the anthrax letters, you know, we've had Zika, two e different Ebola pandemics that were very large. Um, 
as well as monkeypox and COVID and several others. But polio has been also been declared a pandemic. Um, the population has been now trained for, for over 20 years to fear pandemics and to expect them. Um, you may have heard the phrase, it's not a question of if, but when. And that phrase has been used since around the anthrax letter, so a long time. And uh, Fauci and Peter Daszak have both spoken and written about the fact that humans, uh, the, the population, the movements of populations, climate change, et cetera, are all the causes of these pandemics. And we can just expect more of them as the population increases and people move around more, et cetera. Um, so that is the, the narrative we are expected to believe. And um, therefore, now, now here's the good part for the globalist. Therefore, we need to spend a whole lot of money to deal with that so-called reality. And we have to develop tests and vaccines and drugs, and we have to build up genomics labs and perform surveillance of people, that means swabs, uh, people and animals and wastewater constantly looking for where the next pandemic might be coming from. And then we have to do some magical thing to stop it, whatever that is, because obviously you can't, it takes, even under the best or worst of circumstances, the globalists do not anticipate being able to come up with a vaccine in less than 130 days. So, um, which is crazy, you know, it normally takes 10 to 15 years. But um, we're not, you know, we're going to have to worry about these pandemics. And then I suppose they're going to lock us down until they come up with a drug or vaccine, which may or may not work like the COVID vaccines, which work for a few short months and then make you more susceptible to getting COVID um, and also more susceptible to getting a whole lot of other very severe medical conditions that are induced by dangerous vaccines that were never properly tested. Um, so... Another thing that happened with COVID is, uh, and this started in 2005 with the PREP Act, is the government figured out a way for the government and uh, manufacturers and doctors and, and medical facilities to have no liability in case they gave out a bad vaccine, a dangerous vaccine or a vaccine that didn't work, that they could um, call it a countermeasure so it wasn't a licensed drug in general. It wasn't an experiment. It was a countermeasure for some sort of emergence, a national security emergency. And therefore, uh, there would be a, a very small program started and actually started about yeah, about 2005. Um, it actually went into effect, this, pr this program that could pay you off if you had an injury from one of these countermeasures um, and all the COVID vaccines are countermeasures, by the way. And so are the PCR tests. And so are some of the um, ventilators. And the monoclonal antibodies and many of the drugs for COVID are all designated by the government as countermeasures. So if they kill you or injure you, there's nobody to sue. But um, you can try to go to a program and get some money if you can prove your injury was due to the countermeasure, which is very difficult. And so far, the government for COVID, the government's received 12,000 requests for compensation, and they've only paid out four people. And the total amount they've paid out for the four of them is less than $10,000. Uh, 
So what what the WHO is proposing with its member states, remember, these are governments, these are officials, they're not the people from the countries. These, these are essentially um, officials who are working for the elites, um, those who want to usher in a great reset of our society. So they have come up with an idea to draw from what the United States has already done, which is create these very, very quick vaccines and drugs and give them to everybody, ha have them all manufactured within 130 days by shaving off time from everything that you would normally do to produce a vaccine. So this safety testing is pretty much out. Efficacy testing is out. We'll just look and see if it produces antibodies, which any vaccine is gonna produce antibodies doesn't mean they work. Um, and then and they're going to give it to the whole population they're hoping in 130 days. And then they won't be liable if it doesn't work or if it kills you. So, so that is part of the plan. But another part of the plan that's even worse is the fact that the, the this pandemic treaty actually incentivizes and encourages countries to find or create biological weapons. So it tells countries that they must perform surveillance of their populations and their animals to look for potential pandemic pathogens. That's the terminology, potential pandemic pathogens. And if they find them, they must share them globally. Okay, so now you're finding an, an another potential SARS. It might be SARS-CoV-3. And what are you gonna do with it? Everyone's looking for it now. Everyone's going to their bats and their pangolins. Um, and swabbing them, looking for the next best biological agent and then sharing it with the WHO and with other nations. The people who are making this treaty are called diplomats. Diplomats are supposed to know what diplomats do. And one of the things they do is to stop proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. You know, our State Department has, you know, all sorts of uh, strictures about not sharing biological chemical weapons. In fact, the CDC requires that if you're doing research on designated agents that could be biological weapons, that you cannot share them, you cannot transfer them to another facility or another scientist without permission from the CDC. But suddenly this new treaty is saying, look, if you find a potential biological weapon, you've got to share it with everybody else. The other thing the treaty does is um, incentivize gain-of-function research, which is research to create biological weapons or to take viruses or bacteria that you've or fungi that you've already found and um, change them to make them more virulent or more transmissible. And what the treaty, the current draft of the treaty, says about that is that. Um, if you're doing that kind of work, good. We encourage nations to do it as safely as they can. You know, don't, don't take too many chances. But on the other hand, get rid of administrative impediments to the research. So that's what you call incentivizing gain-of-function research. They, so they want you to find all these potential pathogens, and then they encourage you to work on them and make them even more dangerous. Um, this is um, 
beyond insane. It is, it, there is no way to justify this. The only reason it, it has escaped um, attention is, well, one is that the treaty only came out in June, but also that the, lang you know, the language that is used is designed to obfuscate. So only someone like me who has a background in biological warfare can, under can read through the language and understand what they're really saying and can contextualize it. So I, you know, I know that the CDC has a program that restricts you from sharing you know, pathogens, but how many other Americans knew that? You know, I know that there are, there's a treaty um, that prohibits uh, development of biological weapons, but how many other people know that? So anyway, as a result of, of having this background, I um, have become very vocal on the subject, particularly since reading this new version of the treaty, which is much worse than the earlier versions. Uh, one other thing I wanna add is that the treaty leaves a lot to be negotiated later. So it's, it's creating something called the Conference of the Parties and a new bureau at the WHO um, which haven't been well-defined. We don't know who's going to be in them, how big they are, and they're going to make their own rules and decide on what their own purview is. Now, signing a treaty that has that sort of condition in it is equivalent to signing a contract with blank paragraphs. You don't know what is going to be in those paragraphs. We don't know what is going to be in the rest of this treaty. Why would any nation sign something like that? So it's another important reason um, to get away from all this. And um, it's not only the WHO that's a problem, but also the UN. Because the UN, we've talked about this before, the UN has gotten into the act. The UN is now acting with the WHO, has, has its own um, potential pandemic pathogen um, framework, which will be... Um, rolled out on September 20th at the annual meeting of the UN General Assembly. And so in addition to the, its emergency framework, uh, it's also working on this other framework and encouraging nations to go along with the WHO. So, so either the WHO or the UN could, when there's a pandemic or a biological warfare event or some other health emergency that they choose to designate as an internet of international concern, um, the Secretary General of the UN and or the Director General of the WHO could take over management of that health emergency and tell us what drugs we can have, what drugs we can't have, uh, what we must do, what we mustn't do. So um, I'd like to remind the audience that neither uh, Mr. Guterres nor uh, Tedros, Adnam, Gebriasis are physicians and why they should be given the authority to determine how we're to be treated for our health care in the middle of a, a dire emergency, you know, is anybody's guess. Neither of these people has any um, knowledge or, or ability to make those decisions. Meryl, you lay out so much information there, and this is just the summarization of the information that's contained in the article. So again, I will direct people back to actually reading the article with all of the references and all of the links that you have in there. The WHO's proposed amendments will increase 
man-made pandemics. Um, you put so much information on the table. One thing that I want to pick up on is what I see as a parallel, or at least something that's been embedded in this conversation since that prehistory, as it were, of the uh, the earlier conventions, etc., which is the dual the dual use loophole, essentially, of this research. That biological there's really no difference between offensive biological weapons research and defensive biological preparedness research, because in both cases, they do things like gain-of-function research, etc., in order to weaponize pathogens so that we can be better prepared for them in the future. And it looks to me like this WHO, the, the latest proposal uh, treaty and amendments to the IHR, are in a sense um, trying to wed that in from from the nation state level, where obviously the Department of Defense there in the United States and and presumably many, many other um, defense departments around the world were involved in this essentially offensive biological weapons program um, research under the guise of defense, essentially. But it seems like this is being put on a global scale now. And now all of this information is going to be shared by, uh, amongst all of these different countries, which seems to me, and again, I'm the conspiracy theorist, so I'll go out on this speculative limb, uh, but it seems to me that that is the perfect cover for the uh, the advent of some uh, situation in the future in which country X, whatever country that is, oh, they went rogue and they have taken this information that's being shared around and they have used this as an off offensive weapon and the latest pandemic that's coming around is part of this um, biological attack that we are under. There are many ways that this could play out. That is just one of them. But uh, your take on this th this biological weapons slash biological defense non-distinction and how that plays into what we're seeing. So um, the former head of the CDC, Robert Redfield, was asked in Congress about six months ago whether gain-of-function research had resulted in any therapeutics, drugs, vaccines. And he said, to my knowledge, never. So although this um, sort of dual use offensive, defensive biological warfare research, um, which is now, you know, the euphemism gain of function is used for it, um, has been done for a while, um, ignoring this biological weapons treaty. Uh, yes, it. I, I consider, you know, as a scientist, as well as maybe a conspiracy theorist, but it seems to me if it's never come up with a vaccine or a drug, how can we even say it's dual use? Um, what, now, what happened is at some point in the 2000s, the Defense Department came to Tony Fauci and said, look, we want you to do our um, biological de defense research for us. And we're gonna increase your salary about 60% and we're going to give you more money to dole out to virologists and others to do this work. So for about the last 18 years or so, Fauci has been doling out money to, you know, it's even longer than that, Ralph Barrick and others, and then using pass-through financial intermediaries like EcoHealth Alliance to give money to many other countries to do to both capture the organisms, capture the bats, right? We can't go into China's bat caves, but China can. Then let Dr. Xi Li work on the uh, bats, figure out which viruses are dangerous and send them back to Ralph Barrick who will get them to Fort Detrick. 
Um, so that's basically what we're doing. I even found an article in, in a Fort Detrick magazine, or maybe it was a DITRA, Defense Threat Reduction Agency magazine, talking about how they were getting uh, bat viruses, you know, brought back from other countries to be worked on in U.S. government labs. So um, this has been happening. Now, why we would want to share the weapons is anybody's guess. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But if everybody has them and then there's a pandemic, nobody can be blamed, right? You have no idea where it came from because everyone's got the same thing. I would say, so I left something out. Because CDC has a program called the Federal Select Agents Program, select agents are the designated biological warfare agents that if they escaped could be very dangerous to humans, livestock or plants, food, um, they have a program where every lab that we know of that does work on these agents has to be registered and has to inform the CDC whenever there is a leak, a loss, or a theft. And so CDC has been collecting this information for over 20 years. And guess what? There are about 200 reported leaks or thefts or losses a year in the United States alone from the facilities that are registered, 200 a year, 200 potential pandemics a year. So if you start encouraging all the other nations to do this kind of, right, right now there's probably only, you know, a few dozen that do it. But if you encourage, you know, 194 nations that belong to the WHO to all do their own gain of function research and, and make pathogens more transmissible or more virulent, you know, there, there will be escapes. You cannot stop escapes. Um, for SARS-1, SARS-1 was the first deadly coronavirus that anyone ever heard of for humans. It appeared in China in 2002, and it disappeared in 2003. We don't know why. It just disappeared, mutated away. Um, labs started working on it afterwards, you know, as a potential biological warfare agent. It escaped. It escaped and killed people. It escaped in Singapore, Taiwan, and four times in China itself from labs. Six escapes in 2003 and 2004. So what does that tell you? You cannot do this research safely. Um, it really needs to be shut down. We need a strong treaty or some other means to stop it. We need to get rid of these high um, containment labs, the BSL-4s and BSL-3 biosafety level 4 and 3 labs, um, which are the safest places to do this work. You know, scientists don't want to do this kind of work unless they have their own breathing apparatus. They're breathing oxygen from outside the laboratory. They have a moon suit on and that will protect them. You know, scientists do die in these facilities from the infections they are studying. Um, this this has happened uh, in the U.S. and in uh, Russia as well that we know of. So what we have to do is shut down this form of inquiry as being inimical to human safety. And um, we certainly have to stop, you know, get the United States and other nations out of this treaty, out of the WHO. WHO has not helped us. It gave us, gave everybody very bad advice for how to manage the pandemic. 
We don't need their advice. We don't want their advice. You know, Bill Gates was the number one funder when, when uh, sorry, Trump pulled the United States out of the uh, WHO briefly, stopped funding it. Bill Gates and Gavi, his his own, and CEPI, who are, which are two vaccine charities that Bill Gates helped to found, um, funded the WHO. The WHO is 85% funded by uh, private interests. It only gets 15% of its funding from the nations as, as their assessment, that their dues that they have to pay, only 15%. 85% comes from other sources. The, F, the, sorry, the WHO is owned essentially by those other sources. You know, Tedros uh, was on a Bill Gates board of trustees before he became the head of the WHO. Um, so th the whole organization is completely filled with conflicts of interest. Um, none of their high level people tell the truth. And, uh, you know, the quicker we get away from them, the better. You know, not to raise another potentially terrifying aspect of this, but there are, there are others. And one that you bring up is the genomic sequencing conundrum. And you point out that in this proposed treaty, there is language that would commit uh, party member states that sign up to this treaty to building biolabs that must include genomic sequencing. What is the relevance of that? Well, to me, it's crazy. And, and I discussed it with Sasha Latipova, and she also said it's crazy. There is no justification for this. Now, what the WHO is going to say is that, oh, we just want you to sequence all these viruses you get. But why, you know, it, it, why does, uh, you know, Malawi, you know, or Zimbabwe need to be sequencing its own viruses when they can ship them to South Africa or, or you know, or to Europe and get them sequenced, you know, to basically just as quickly. Um, it, that doesn't make sense. And yet all the nations are directed to do this. Well, once you have a genomics sequence, and this is, you know, high tech stuff. So these tr the treaty and the amendments do not talk about how we can use repurposed drugs for pandemics. You know, it's a pandemic treaty, right? So what have you got? When a pandemic happens, what have you already got? Only the drugs that have already been approved, right? Licensed drugs and supplements you know, vitamins, that's it. You don't have vaccines. You don't have monoclonal antibodies. You don't have new drugs that they're going to develop. Obviously, the most important thing for nations to do is to, is to study their new, the, the existing drugs and see which ones are likely to work against this new organism. Nothing in the treaty or the amendments talks about that at all. They don't care about old drugs. All they want is patentable drugs. They want... Um, particularly vaccines. And so anyway, all of a sudden, when, you know, most countries in sub-Saharan Africa really have almost very little primary care, now we're, tell we're telling them we're going to help fund uh, laboratories where they can perform the highest levels of uh, genomic sequencing. It's, um, you know, it, it's nonsensical. But presumably, um, so one thing the nations didn't want, the, the developing countries did not want, was for the developed countries to steal their biological intellectual property, right? So if we found a drug or, um, uh, you know, a bacterium or a virus in a developing country, 
they didn't want us to just grab it and go with it. We had to pay for that. And so this may be sort of a sop to that. Well, you can do your own genomics. You can figure it out. You can make more money. But but it's still, it doesn't make sense. So what I think is more likely is that they actually are trying to put in place a method by which more human genomes can be sequenced. And by sequencing people's genes, so you take somebody, for example, who has a, an HIV positive partner, but they don't have HIV, they've never gotten it. Well, there's presumably something in their genes that makes them resistant. Well, if we could find that, it'd be worth billions of dollars, right? We could, if we could patent it and sell it. So um, that is one of the hopes that by um, sequencing people's genomes, very valuable drugs will be able to 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 be uh, produced. But, um, but it's valuable also, in what sense, and valuable for whom? Yeah, and right. What, you know, exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's also it is the epitome of lack of privacy. If you're not even in control of your own genes, if somebody else knows what your genes are, and if they want to inject you with genetic vaccines, which may not even be vaccines, that can mutate you. And that's another question, you know, why are there double-stranded DNA plasmids? Why are there so many of them in the COVID vaccines along with the SV40 um, molecules? Is this an attempt to induce mutations? Um, you know, the whole thing is science fiction almost, and yet it's what we're dealing with. You know, I mm. would never have Science fact, unfortunately. I just want people to understand the, the historical context of where this is coming from, because as you say, it's impossible for the average person who does not think in these terms to wrap their minds around the mindset of people who would be interested in controlling the population on a genomic level. Um, but if you do not understand the history of eugenics and dysgenics and the obsession that has been around in elitist circles and pseudoscientific circles for at least a century and a half by this point, um, you do not truly understand where this agenda has come from and where it is going. Um, and that's why I think uh, that's one of the reasons why this constant genomic sequencing is such a uh, scary prospect and also why uh, it has come up to the surface in the past few years that it, oh, the Pentagon is collecting genomic information on uh, people of, uh, of of Russian descent, I believe, specifically, was something that the Russians were pointing out. Hey, why why is the government, uh, the U.S. government, doing this? I I may have the details of that incorrect, but people can look it up. There was a story to that effect in the past few years, and it would be naive to think that presumably every every major government in the world isn't pursuing things along those lines. And I will never never pass up the opportunity to point out. Rebuilding America's Defenses, the document by the Project for a New American Century released in September of 2000, which pointed, which said blatantly that as part of their grand trans, trans, transformation of the American military that they had in mind, part of that was the idea of making race-specific bioweapons a potentially politically useful tool. Um, so again, this isn't coming from conspiracy theorist James Corbett or longtime researcher Merrill Nass. No, this is coming from insiders themselves and is absolutely part of this. But yeah. let's try to wrap this conversation up on something more fundamental for people who 
have not gotten the message yet and do not understand this, let's underline that we should not be taking at face value the pronouncements of the very people who did who made absolutely every recommendation that went against health over the past few years, keeping people locked away out indoors and uh, poo-pooing and denigrating vitamin C and vitamin D and other just basic elements of health. And then, and then wondering why, why are so many people sick all of a sudden? Why should we be taking their pronouncements at face value? And if we don't, then what should we be doing to protect our health? So um, I, I totally agree with you. I was not cognizant enough about vitamin D. And, um, you know, it, it's hard. There's so many articles in the medical literature. It's hard to really sort it all out. Michael Hollick has been a voice in favor of high levels of vitamin D. But, you know, other people dispute him, say he has a vested interest, whatever. Um, and doctors don't like to go outside of, you know, the the very narrow Overton window on therapeutics. So I was not knowledgeable, but I can tell you since I started upping my vitamin D and now I've got a level instead of 30, 35, my level's about a hundred. I don't get colds anymore. I don't get other infections. It's really made a difference and, and convinced me, even though I'm an N of one, um, I would encourage everyone because we don't know what's coming. We, you know, we're being threatened. Yeah, I mean, these infections, these pandemics are being held over our heads. It's a sort of Damocles in a way. And so you want you want to exercise if you possibly can, dance, you know, if you can't get outside, dance in your house, get some exercise, get sun if you can, um, keep your spirit up, having a good um, view of the world, you know, not, not of history necessarily or what's going on, but connect with friends, have a network, and realize that we can really fix a lot of things now if we all get together. Um, there's enough of us realizing what's going on. We have an opportunity that hasn't been presented to us in you know well over 100 years to really change things. Um, vit but vitamin D, and now you don't, not everybody absorbs vitamin D properly. People need different amounts. It's uh, worthwhile to get your blood level checked. Vitamin C is good too. I mean, in terms of the pandemic, in terms of COVID, vitamin D proved itself. Almost everybody who was studied that went to ICUs turned out to be vitamin D deficient. So the people who got the worst cases of COVID um, that we know about were vitamin D deficient. And treating people with vitamin D after they had COVID, if you give them a, a you know, rapidly acting form, there was definite improvement. So there's a number of studies that show that. Um, and I think the main thing is, is to stop this craziness and end the gain of function and the, end the biological defense, biological warfare research, call it what it is. Don't let them keep saying gain of function. You know, this is, um, this is a, uh, this pandemic was due to a biological warfare agent that was created in a lab and it was a crime against humanity. And that's the language we need to be using when we talk about it. All right, I think we should direct people to the article. Once again, it's at merylnass.substack.com. The WHO's proposed treaty will increase man-made pandemics. And uh, as I say, we've only scratched the surface of it. There's a lot of detail there with many, many, many links. So I hope people will check that out. And I let me just finally here, just uh, uh, bolster and reiterate what you were saying there. 
uh, in my non-medical expert opinion, I think uh, mental health is a severely overlooked part of overall health. And people who are depressed and sad and fearful are going to be ultimately sicker and easy, more easily controlled than people who understand that, yes, we are living in some dark and, and scary times, but we do ultimately control our fate and we can uh, overcome this. Th it is not written in stone and the WHO does not control us. And I want people not to live in that fear state because I think that ultimately contributes to them being sicker. So yeah, on I, that note, I totally agree with you. Let me say one more thing. Sure. The, the WHO and UN are talking about mental health a lot, which is odd because they don't even have primary care. They're talking about mental health. And if you think going back to Brave New World, it looks like they're trying to set us up to give us psychiatric drugs. So be wary of that. Yeah. Don't tell the authorities you have a, a mental health issue and um, try to, you know, do everything you can to get yourself healthy in body and mind. And, spirit. and people who are interested, I'll just quickly direct them. I did a, a conversation a few months ago with Dr. Bruce Levine on finding mental health, talking about alternatives to the the drugging of America and uh, the people of the world and different ways of, of understanding mental health. Uh, again, I think a severely overlooked issue. But as you say, the more that the eye of Sauron, as it were, looks at this issue, the more we will get the wrong, I think, take on it, which will be probably more to do with prescription medicines that will benefit big pharma once again. Okay, many, many things to talk about, but I'm about to turn into a pumpkin, so I have to get going. Meryl Nass, thank you for joining me on your program. <laughs> thank you so much for agreeing to interview me um, so we could get the word out, and uh, I'll see you next month. Thank you again. looking towards Savannah, Georgia, where we're having the second Children's Health Defense Conference. We have amazing speakers. Not only do we have our amazing CHD team, but we have Dr. Andy Wakefield. We have Catherine Austin Fitz. Suzanne Humphreys, the first right. five years. Dr. Zim Malhotra from the UK. Uh, Dr. Paul Thomas from Washington, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler from Michigan and Pennsylvania. We have the CHD science track and we're going to be talking specifically about children's health issues and environmental impacts, things like vaccines. We've got Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, Dr. Paul Thomas and uh, his colleague Dee Dee Hoover. Also Dr. Sabine Hazen, who's going to be talking about the gut biota and a full day of, of uh, just the science track. This big bus here behind me is going going to be at the Children's Health Defense Conference. We've already worked, as we speak now, only six days on the road, and the stories have been heartbreaking, but also once full of hope to be unvaccinated as well. So come and tell your story. And I look forward to talking to you about all the litigation efforts we're, we're involved in and, and what the wins are. And it's not gonna be the same without you. And these conferences are where we really feel our strength. We feel our power. We get re-energized so that we can go back and continue to talk to people and to educate people. So please come November 3rd through 5th in Savannah. Thank you so much.